Now today we are beginning a brand new series, and I am so excited about this series, not only because it's something that I am personally passionate about, but because we're going to be talking about a subject that I think is absolutely critical for us to talk about, especially uh, with everything going on in our world right now and all that we've experienced for so many months. In fact, if you were with us back in January this past year, you may remember that we began 2021 by kind of pausing and saying to ourselves, okay, because of all that we'd been through up till that point, we really need to just pause and ask three very specific questions. What have I learned? What have we learned? And what do we actually want to carry forward from all this? And we said the reason why these questions are so important is because they help us to process the unexpected, right? They help us to, to process crisis. And so for all of us today, I think one of the things that we've learned after the last 18 months is how critical family is and how critical the relationships are in our family. And so if after the last 18 months of hurt and brokenness and division, um, your family has felt a little bit wounded, if your family has felt a little bit fragile, right, if your family has just been a little bit weary, then you are certainly not alone, right? This last 18 months have been hard on all of us and all of our relationships, but especially on our families, and so I'm really excited that we're going to get the chance to talk about this together over these next couple of weeks. And I want to tell you where we're going to go with this series. Today is a little bit of an introduction to the topic. And so if you leave today with more questions than you had when you came in, that's actually good. Because today we're going to be talking about this tension that we all live in between what is real and what is ideal when it comes to the subject of family. And then next week we're going to look at the New Testament's most controversial teaching on the subject of family. The third week, we're going to talk about conflict in the family. And so just to make sure that we're all on the same page here, how many of you ever had some kind of a conflict in your family of origin or in your current family? Raise your hand. Right, great. Okay, so 50% of you are lying right now, and like it's only five minutes into church. So that's, we're off to a great start. So conflict, we're going to talk about conflict in the family, how you can make progress in conflict. Week four, we're going to talk about how the hurt and the pain in our past family can actually show up very suddenly and very unexpectedly in our present family. And then the last week, we're going to talk about the most destructive lie that we tell ourselves when it comes to the subject of family. So this is going to be a great series. It's going to be a very practical series. Hopefully, it's going to be a very helpful series for you and for all of us as well, especially, again, for those of you who are joining us online during this series. I'm so happy and I'm so thankful to be invited into your home and to get the chance to spend some time with you throughout this series as well. Now, um, one of the things that makes the subject of family just so difficult and so challenging to talk about is that when it comes to the issues of family, right, all of us, um, our experiences are just so incredible incredibly, incredibly diverse, right? Some of you are in a second marriage right now. Some of you are in a third marriage right now. Some of you are in between marriages right now, right? You're raising kids. You're raising somebody else's kids. You've adopted kids. Maybe you have foster kids in your home, right? And because our experiences of family are so incredibly diverse, it's easy for us to miss what it is that actually every single one of us and all of our families do have in common. And the truth is there aren't a whole lot of things that we all have in common, but there are at least three. The first of which is that when it comes to our family of origin, right, none of us actually had any choice in the matter, did we? In fact, if you think back to middle school, can you remember that family that you wished that you were actually a part of because you looked at that family and you thought that family was a better family than your family? 
right? They let their kids stay up like all night long and they could eat whatever they wanted, um, however much they wanted all the time. They had like no rules in the family. And it was like the dad, like he never even worked. He just like had fun all the time. Right, and you remember that family, and didn't, isn't it true that at some point in your life when you were growing up, you kind of wished that you were a part of that family? The other thing that all of us have in common is that at some point we've all asked the question, okay, why is it that no one who is related to me is as smart as me? <laughs> right, have you noticed this? Maybe you even got your family to get, maybe you thought to yourself and you said, okay, listen, if I could just sit everyone down in this family like in the same room for 20 minutes, I could solve all of these problems, right? I could solve all of this. And then isn't it so strange how just like a couple of years after you experience this, it's like the exact opposite, right? I, I remember so many times being in my office or driving home and thinking to myself, okay, how come I cannot figure this out? I mean, so there has got to be, why can't, I, why can't I fix this? Why can't I respond better? Why do I keep doing and saying the same dumb things over and over and over again? The third thing that all of us experience at some point in our lives when it comes to family is that all families struggle, right? All, all families struggle. And, and the reason this is true is because um, family is emotional, right? All family, family is never emotionally neutral. When you think about your family, right, there are great memories, there are happy memories, um, there, there are memories that you treasure, but isn't it true there's also hard memories? Right? Isn't it true there's also painful memories, isn't it true sometimes it feels like our family is just in this constant state of chaos? And see, that's what makes the subject of family such a challenging subject. Now, here's the other part that might be new to you, and if, if, if you're new to following Jesus or if you're new to church, um, if you're, again, joining with us one of the first times, this might surprise you, but um, isn't it interesting, and, and I don't know if you've ever done this or not, I have done this, but isn't it interesting if you ask yourself the question, okay, what can I learn about family from, from this, from the Bible? Isn't it interesting how when you open the pages of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, there's like no good examples of family anywhere? Have you noticed this? Like even all the way you think about how families actually began with Adam and Eve, right? And the fact that the first, I mean, think about this, the first homicide that ever took place actually took place in the context of family between Adam and Eve's sons. And then you think about like Abraham and, and Noah, right, and David and all those families, I mean, even think about Jesus. There's this very interesting scripture at the end of Luke chapter 2 where Mary and Joseph are like talking to each other and they're like, hey, have you seen Jesus? No. Hey, have you seen Jesus? No. Like imagine that prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us find your son because we lost him and we don't know where we put him. Right? You read the Old Testament. And yeah, you help find some helpful pieces of advice in there. You find some principles floating around in there. But as diverse as all of our family experiences are, right, there's pretty much nothing that any of us would say is an example of a healthy family. But then when you get to the New Testament, something radically different comes through. 
And, and I can't even put into words exactly. I've been struggling with this all week, trying to figure out how to actually express this in a way that would carry the emotional weight of this. Right? Because the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, right, as he's, as he's planting all of these churches all throughout the Mediterranean rim with, um, with, with all these, these people, these Greek people, these Roman people, people who have no idea about God, people who have no idea about the Old Testament, people who have absolutely no idea about the Ten Commandments or the, any of these famous Jewish families, people who don't know any of this stuff. The Apostle Paul takes the teachings of Jesus and applies them to the subject of family. And, and, and again, I cannot stress to you um, how new these ideas were for the people who were listening to them. I mean, there had never been a society or a culture at this point that had ever tried any of these ideas that Paul was saying about family. Nobody had ever heard these things before. All of them, however, were simply a reflection of what it is that Jesus actually taught about the value of men and women, and children. And so today, as we kind of begin this whole thing and kick this whole series off, we're going to start by looking at three sections of Scripture, which if you take them together, pretty much give us a summary. They give us an overview of everything the New Testament has to say on the subject of family. And I've got to warn you, these three Scriptures that we're going to look at, they are controversial. Right? They're controversial in our world today because for many of us, when we hear these sections of Scripture, we're, we're going to think to ourselves, okay, that is so, like, that's what my parents believe, that's what my grandparents believe. Like, nobody in our world actually believes those things anymore. But again, here's the part that I can't fully communicate and what's so critical for us to understand. In our world today, the reason these passages and these ideas are thought of as controversial is because they are old and they are, they are antiquated, is what some people would say. But when these teachings were first written down, when they first started to be lived out, right, in the very first century, in an incredibly brutalistic and paganistic and polytheistic culture of Rome, not Israel, of Rome, these teachings were so controversial because they were incredibly, they were radically new, especially in regards to what they had to say about women and children. Because when these things were written down, women were not thought of to be any much, much more valuable than cattle. And children? In the first century, it was not uncommon for parents who had a baby that they did not want to keep to actually take that baby and leave it at the edge of the forest, leave it at the edge of a riverbank, exposed to the elements, exposed to all the wild animals. Right? In fact, that, that's what this, this practice was called. It was called practicing exposure. And it was not illegal. It was normal. And the reason it was not illegal is because people did not think of this as parents, you know, harming their children or, or even killing their children. What they thought of is that this was just parents who were leaving their children to their fate, right, or to the fates. That's what they would say. And, and so um, if somehow that child survived um, being exposed, then so be it. But if that child were to die, if that child were to suffer, if that child ended up being carried off by someone who had evil intentions, then that was just simply their fate. This was not illegal. It was normal. And it was literally practiced all throughout the Roman Empire for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before 
Jesus. Now, in fact, if you're a kid who's here today, if you're a kid who's watching at home right now, and you are thinking to yourself, okay, that is crazy, you are right. You are right. That is crazy. And one of the reasons why Jesus came into our world was to teach everyone that that was wrong. And that you as children and as little kids, that you are the most valuable thing. You are the most valuable thing that any family has. And what changed that understanding was the fact that one day while Jesus was teaching a group of adults, he paused and he looked over to a group of children and he looked at them and he says, okay, let the little children come to me and do not get in their way. Do not hinder them, he said, because the kingdom of heaven, it actually belongs. The kingdom of heaven belongs to children. Nobody could have imagined this before Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul realized when Jesus said this, the followers of Jesus realized that when Jesus said this, this meant that children had incredible, incredible value. And so consequently, and again, you can look this up in history, it was the Christians who would walk around the edges of riverbanks picking up these children, walking around the edges of forests picking up these children. And even though they barely had enough food to feed their own families, they brought these kids into their families and they raised them as their own. In fact, here's something else that you need to know, and if you don't believe me, then you should absolutely fact-check me on this. In every single culture, in every single culture since the first century that has embraced the teachings of Jesus as it relates to family, in every single one of those cultures, women and children have fared better. And in every culture that has either walked away from or failed to embrace those very same teachings in the New Testament as it relates to family, women and children have suffered. In fact, it is so interesting to me right now that in our world today, there is literally a group of women who are fighting like mad in the Middle East who experience the same rights, the same freedoms that women here in our country and women in the West get to experience. And what they're fighting against is literally the teachers and the tenets of their own religion. Why? Because it was the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament that paved the way that opened the door for women to experience the rights and the freedoms and the equality that women in the West get to experience in our world. And so when the Apostle Paul first wrote um, these things down that we're about to read together today and look at together today, they were incredibly controversial. They were absolutely radical and they were completely disruptive to society. And they gave women and children and families hope. Hope. And the basis of everything that he would say was simply this. That when Jesus died, he died for all men, all women, and all children equally. This was unbelievable. Nobody had ever thought this or believed this before. And in that moment, Jesus made women on par. He made them citizens of heaven on par with their husbands. They may not have been able to be citizens of their own country. They may not have ever had the opportunity to be a citizen of Rome, but they were citizens of heaven on par with their husbands. This was unheard of in the first century. 
And the Apostle Paul realized, in light of what it is that Jesus has done for all of us, this is how family should operate. And so he says this. The first one is found in Ephesians chapter 6. It says this. It says, children, right? So parents, we like this one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on earth. And then he continues and he says this. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Now, for me as a dad, when I, my kids were growing up, right, the truth is this is one of the New Testament commands that, that I am most guilty of breaking. And every time I, I, I violated this command, it was always unintentional. But it still happened. And see, the truth is, even though now both of my kids are grown up, both of my sons are moved out and they're living on their own, and, and my oldest son is, is married and he's beginning his own family, the truth is, I can still do this if I'm not careful. Right? To exasperate means you place a weight on someone with your words that causes them to be discouraged. You say something to your kids and you mean for it to be positive, right? You're encouraging them, you're contrasting their behavior with somebody else's behavior, you're trying to discipline them a little bit, but without meaning to and without intending to, you place a weight on them and a burden on them and it breaks their spirit. Right? This is what the Apostle Paul is saying, and every time I would do this, I would always say the same things to my sons. I'm just telling you the truth. Listen, what I am telling you is true, but I could see it in their eyes. I had broken their spirit, and so I needed to apologize for that. Dad's what you always, what we always have to remember, right? And you've heard me say this to you before. This is not new. Moms, your words weigh like 10 pounds. Dads, our words weigh 100 pounds. Right? We can say the very same things to our kids that mom can say, but when it comes from dad, it just feels different. It just does. It just does. And what's so interesting to me is that nowhere in the pages of Scripture does it say any place. Mothers do not exasperate your children. It says fathers. Fathers. Because this is so easy for us to do. And dads, there are so many, so many, if you knew, if you only knew, there are so many bad examples of parenting in my past where I have not gotten this right, even though I didn't intend to. But those are the times I had to go to my sons and I had to ask their forgiveness and I had to apologize for my words, even if what I said was correct. And 2,000 years later, this is the part that just blows me away. You've got to think about this. 2,000 years ago, right, in a world that was dominated by brutality and harshness, right, God actually puts this in Scripture. I mean, think about that. Think about that for a minute. Because our Heavenly Father understood something. He understood. He knows that how our kids see us is going to greatly influence how one day, they're going to end up seeing him. 
And because our Heavenly Father actually wants to have a relationship with both us and our children, 2,000 years ago, that was crazy talk. No adult wanted to have a relationship with somebody else's children 2,000 years ago. But the Apostle Paul says, and Jesus says, that your Heavenly Father, He wants a relationship with you, and He wants a relationship with your kids. And so because of that, He puts this in His word. It's absolutely amazing. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, right, he doubles down at this point. Bring them up in the training or the, and the instruction of the Lord. Right? The Apostle Paul is basically saying this. He's saying, listen, um, exasperation is in fact the opposite of training and instructing your, chi- your children the way Jesus would train or instruct your children. Right? Jesus didn't exasperate anyone, Paul's saying. So fathers, do not exasperate your kids as you're teaching them. You teach them the way that Jesus would teach them. The Apostle Paul moves on in another section of Scripture. He says this. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh. Here, the same thing comes up again. Do not be harsh with them. Why? Because in this day when this was written, men were harsh with their mule and they were harsh with their ox and they were harsh with their wife. Because when this was written, people did not believe that a person's wife was much more valuable than any of those other things. But the Apostle Paul says, okay, for those of us who follow Jesus, this way of harshness, this way of living, that is now over. From now on, we are called to love, right? Not try to own. We are called to love, not try to take advantage of. We are called to love our wives. And again, this seems so obvious to us and so old-fashioned to us. But in the first century when these words were written, this had an incredible effect in raising the value and the dignity of women. In fact, by the third century of Rome, in the third century of Rome, more than half of the female followers of Jesus who were married were over the age of 18. That is staggering. Because in the non-Christian, in the, non, in the group of people who did not follow Jesus, only 20% were over the age of 18. Very quickly in the Roman world, the safest place that a woman could find herself in terms of society was actually in marriage to a follower of Jesus. Now, the Apostle Paul is not the only one who does this. Peter actually picks up on the very same thing, and he says this. He says, husbands, in the same way, as the same way as the Apostle Paul, I'm telling you, I'm asking you to be considerate as you live with your wives. Now again, we hear this and we think this is just common sense, right? But I'm telling you, the men who heard this for the very first time, you know what they were thinking? <laughs> Wait a minute, you mean be, be considerate of, of the wife that I didn't even get to choose? You're asking me to be considerate of the wife that my parents just woke me up one day and said, hey, this is who you're going to marry and they didn't give me any choice in the matter and, and no one was considerate of my feelings and now you're saying I have to be considerate of your feelings or her feelings? That's the person you're talking about? And Peter said, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. In fact, he goes on and he says this. He says, I want you to actually treat them with respect. Again, unheard of. As the weaker partner and heir with you. Now, what is this all about? I mean, certainly he's not talking about the money you're going to get from your parents one day, right? No, he says, heirs with you. What Peter is saying is this. Listen, You have a heavenly father, and your wife has a heavenly father, and it's the same heavenly father. 
This is what Peter is explaining. And then he goes on, he says this, heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing, don't miss this, so that nothing will hinder your prayers? That's kind of odd. Hinder my prayers? What is that all about? Let me explain it like this. Do you know who the group of people is or are that I am least inclined to be charitable to? It's the people who hurt my kids. See, this is what Peter is explaining to us. He's saying, listen, you have a heavenly father. Your wife has a heavenly father. It is the same heavenly father. Do you, do you really think that your heavenly father, Peter would say, do you really think your heavenly father is going to be inclined to listen to your prayers when your wife is telling him how incredibly inconsiderate you are of her? So in summary... If we were to summarize all of these teachings in the New Testament on the subject of family, basically what it says is this. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, do not exasperate your kids. Let's close in prayer and go home. Amen. A little obvious, right? No, no rocket science going on here. Definitely some, some idealism. Definitely some common sense. But a whole lot of tension. Right? And that tension of these words is going to be the context for everything that we're going to talk about together over these next several weeks. Because listen, you did not come from an ideal family and you have not created an ideal family and neither have I. And your current family may be more or less ideal than the, your family of origin or the family that you hope to have one day. So for all of us, right, for all of us, there is a huge amount of tension when it comes to this subject and to these teachings. And see, here's the thing that, um, that, that Jesus did. Whenever the topic of relationships came up, and especially when it came down to male-female relationships or family relationships, Jesus always did this. Jesus always taught us and pointed us towards the ideal, but he never condemned anyone for what was real. Right, let me say this again because this is the tension and this is the gospel. Jesus always and taught us and pointed us towards the ideal, but he never condemned anyone for falling short. Jesus would say things like this. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He would point us towards an ideal. And in every situation, you may not have noticed this, in every situation, Jesus always raised whatever the current standard was. Jesus never lowered it. In fact, the, the, the most profound example of this occurs in the New Testament in Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's the example that impacts so many of us and is so emotional for so many of us. And so because of that, I want us to look at it for just a couple of minutes today. It's when Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 speaks and teaches on the subject of adultery. Because Jesus said this, he said, listen, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Right? And in the first century, everybody knew what the current standard was when it came to the subject of adultery. It meant you took your body, and with your body, you went out and you committed adultery with it. 
But then Jesus came along and he said, okay, that's not really what this is about. There's actually something much more significant going on. There's actually a much higher standard than this because Jesus said, but I tell you, anyone, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already, they have already committed adultery with her in his heart. Which meant that in this moment, Jesus just made an adulterer out of every single man and potentially every single woman is in his audience, as well as every person who would ever read or hear these words. Jesus took the current standard and he raised it. And in fact, he raised it so high that every single one of us, we find ourselves in this gap between what is ideal and what is real. And so our first inclination, whenever that happens, is to look at Jesus and say to Jesus, but Jesus, don't you realize that if you do that, don't you realize that if you raise the standard so high, Jesus, what's going to happen to me? Jesus, if you do that, what in the world are you going to do to me? Jesus, what are you going to do to us, all of us who have come from broken families, all of us who have committed adultery, all of us who have broken marriages? Jesus, what are you going to do to me? (laughs) Jesus looks at us and says, okay, wait, time out. Do something to you? (laughs) No. No. No, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to forgive you. To which we hear that and we think to ourselves, okay, then, Jesus, you're just letting us off the hook. Like, so which is it, Jesus? Is it, is it a rule or is it not a rule? Which is, is it a rule or not a rule? And Jesus just says, yes. 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 See, this is what we always miss. Right, the standard got higher and the grace went deeper. Right, the standard got higher and the forgiveness got richer. And this is the part we always miss. The standard got higher and inclusion actually got broader. See, this is what Jesus always did, and this is what always throws people off. It's also why John, when he was talking about Jesus and describing Jesus, tells us that when Jesus came into our world, he was absolutely overflowing with. He was filled to the brim, John would say, with both grace and truth. Jesus always taught people and pointed people towards the ideal, but he never condemned anyone for falling short. And there is incredible tension in this for all of us. Because the truth is, if we're honest, we want to live in one extreme or the other. We want to avoid that uncomfortable tension. And we push towards one of these two things. We want to live in one extreme or the other because we want to get rid of this tension. And so that means the question for all of us as we begin this series together, the question is this, are we willing to embrace an ideal? Are we willing to actually embrace an ideal that may never be a reality in my current family? Or am I going to be tempted to just lose sight of that ideal in order to feel better about what's real? Are we willing to embrace a picture, a goal, Right, an idea, an image that we may never live up to? Or will we do the easy thing 
and decide to just declare that whatever is real is absolutely normal. Now clearly, right, clearly there is a very uncomfortable tension in this for all of us. And here's the part I do not want you to miss. If we try to resolve that, un- that tension because it is uncomfortable, we will lose something incredibly important. We will lose either grace or truth. And Jesus never did that. He never resolved that tension. And so as followers of Jesus, we can't do that either. We've got to live in it. This gap between the ideal and the real. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and you're watching with us today, you're here with us today, then I would tell you this, that over these next several weeks, Jesus is inviting. In fact, I would say he's instructing all of us, including me, to follow him into the complexity of family and to carry this tension between what is real and what is ideal. What it is that we see being lived out every single day in our family relationships, in our family of origin, in our present family, and this ideal picture that Jesus gives to us throughout the pages of Scripture. And so the question again is this, will we embrace a standard that many of us have or will fall short of, or will we simply redefine terms so we can feel better about where we're at? That's the tension. But see, here's the thing that you know if you are a follower of Jesus. You may not realize that you know this, but you've already figured this out. If you follow Jesus from time to time, you are going to feel uncomfortable. From time to time, if you follow Jesus, you are going to feel uncomfortable about your current situation. Right? Because as followers of Jesus, every single one of us at some point in our lives is going to find ourselves somewhere in that gap between the real and the ideal when it comes to some area of life. Now, one last thing and then we're going to wrap up. If you're here with us today, especially if you're watching online and, and you're not buying any of what I'm saying, Right, because you're, you're hearing all this and you're like, okay, you, you had me a follower of Jesus because that's not me. Not there. Or maybe you are a follower of Jesus and you just can't get past the fact that this is just so old sounding, so antiquated sounding, so old fashioned, whatever that is. I, I get that. I understand all of that, okay? All I would say to you is simply this. Here, here's why. Here's why what Jesus is saying as painful, as difficult as it is to believe, here's why this really is the best way forward for you, for your family going, going forward. Here, here's what I've noticed. I have never once met a man or a woman who was divorced who wanted divorce for their children. I have spoken to and worked with a whole lot of families that have gone through and been through divorce in in the time of my ministry here in this place over the last 30 years. And I can tell you, right, in fact, what I have noticed is that as the men and the women who have faced the loneliness of divorce, the hopelessness of divorce, the desperation of divorce, the, 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 the bitterness in divorce, it is those men and women who have faced that head on. They are the ones who want a successful marriage for their children more than anybody else. Why is that? Because we always want the ideal when it comes to our kids and our grandkids. Isn't that true? 
I have never once met a woman who had custody of her kids and was taking care of kids as a single mom. I've never met a dad who had custody of kids and taking care of, of, of kids as a single dad. I have never once met a person in that situation who wished that one day their children would also be a single parent. Because we always want the ideal when it comes to our kids and our grandkids, right? And so here's my prayer for all of us as we wade into this over the next several weeks. My prayer is that every single one of us, every one of you who are watching online at home right now, my prayer is that you would know, because this is true, you would know that God's grace, it is true for you, it is true for your family, regardless of what your family looks like. God's grace and his love is real, and it's true for you. And my prayer is also that none of us, that none of us would give into that temptation to take our eyes off this picture of what is ideal and to just go for whatever is easy simply because it's real. That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for all of us as we begin this series together. Let me pray for you today. Father, I know and you know, obviously, that this is one of those subjects that just raises all kinds of emotions for all of us. And those emotions, um, they, they, they run the gamut from joy and thankfulness to regret and pain and hurt. And so, Father, I pray for all of us as we jump into this together um, that we would not simply settle for what's real because it's what we see or because it's what we've experienced. Jesus, you give us the words of life. You yourself are life. You tell us that your grace is real in our lives and for every single one of us, regardless of whatever real is for us. And so, Jesus, I ask that you give us the faith we need to hold on to what you say. That when we feel broken, when we feel hurt, when we feel shame and guilt, Jesus, that we would have the faith needed to believe your word is true. That you have separated that from us. That you have taken our sin, you have taken our guilt, you have taken our shame, and you have removed it. That that's not us anymore. Because of what it is that you have done in us and through us. And so we ask that you would give us the courage we need when we fall short, because all of us fall short. That we would have the courage to keep looking, Jesus, at your word, at your truth, and at this ideal picture of family. And that you would remind us that you are the one who brings that promise of grace and truth and love into each of our families every single day, no matter what. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name.